All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm super excited for this episode. I have a first time guest on Creedal Catholic to me uh, today. I'm joined by Joe Heschmeyer, who is coming on to talk about his most recent book called Pope Peter. Joe, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Zach, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I, I really am excited about this. So our mutual friend, Simone Riscala, connected us, but I've been following your work for some time at, at your blog, Shameless Popery. And then when your book came out, uh, I heard about this several months ago, and I was like, I really have to get a copy of this and read it. And it did not disappoint. It's a very good book. We'll, we'll get to all that. But I want to give my listeners a very brief description of your bio so they understand your background, where you're coming from, what you do, where to follow your work, and then we'll dive right into the discussion about the book. So Joe was previously a litigator in Washington, D.C., and then a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City. He now works as a religious instructor at the Holy Family School of Faith, which is a group of lay faithful who help others to grow closer to Jesus through Mary by means of friendship, good conversation, and the rosary. Joe blogs at Shameless Popery and co-hosts a weekly podcast, so he's a fellow podcaster, called The Catholic Podcast. If you want to follow Joe's work, go find The Catholic Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can just search Shameless Popery. It's shamelesspopery.com, and you can read more of his work there. Or, uh, perhaps most importantly, or most germane to this episode, you can pick up a copy of his latest book called Pope Peter. So, Joe, let's start there. You wrote this book. I have to say, I really, I mean, I had high expectations because I've been, like I said, I've been following your work and I expected it to be of high quality, but it uh, it exceeded my expectations. I think it's a very well-researched book. I actually don't know how many pages it is because it's I have the Kindle version, but it has well over 400 footnotes in it uh, and, and your research shines through. So it's a very well-researched book. I also appreciate how you don't, you, you talk about, you know, some of the arguments that are sort of well-trotted that we've heard before for the Petron ministry of the church. But you also talk about many that, if not totally novel, they're at least not well-known. And you, I think, add some original research to sort of expanding on them and elaborating on those. And I also appreciate how you employ what I call the Thomistic principle of taking the, the, the strong man of your opponent's argument, right? So rather than making a straw man of your opponent's argument, you go to the source and take their strongest. So one example that, that comes to mind is there's a, a Protestant scholar named Keith Matheson who's done a lot of work on uh, Sola Scriptura and what it is and what it isn't. And one of Matheson's points is, you know, unfortunately, Sola Scriptura in the Protestant world is often caricatured within Protestantism and outside of by Catholics as Solo Scriptura. And, and Matheson very carefully kind of walks through that and explains what Sola Scriptura is and how it's not Solo Scriptura, et cetera. But you rely on Matheson's work work a lot to sort of engage with the best arguments that Protestantism has to offer against some of these claims that the Catholic Church has. So all that to say, Joe, it's a very good work. I really appreciate it and great job. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I often when I'm reading works that I don't know a lot about the subject, I get really frustrated if I know enough to know that there are like two sides to an argument because you'll, you'll see, I mean, this happens in politics, this happens in all sorts of stuff where, you know, side A will present a pretty convincing argument for A, but then they'll engage with only the dumbest arguments that B would present. And they'll, they'll deal with these kind of ridiculous kind of caricatures of side B and what, what side B might say. And then you go pick up a book by side B and it's the same thing in reverse. And at the end, you're like, okay, well, what would B say to A? What would A say to B if they would actually talk to each other? And so I wanted a book that actually dealt with um, the best objections that I could find, the things I found most persuasive against the papacy. Like, I kind of was writing with like, okay, if I were going to be convinced that the papacy wasn't true, who would convince me? So I'm looking for the reformers. I'm looking for uh, popular modern uh, preachers, you know, John MacArthur and the like. And I'm looking for... Uh, both 
kind of the kind of pop scholarship and then like the really academic scholarship, like who are the scholars in the field who people are really convinced by, who are they really buying into, or who I just think have like good arguments against the Catholic claim. Because it's like, well, if the Catholic Church can hold up against that, now we know. You know, the fact that it can hold up against kind of the ridiculous, silly, crazy, wild-eyed fundamentalist, that's great, but that doesn't tell me much. Because, you know... (laughs) A lot of things could hold up against that. I want to know if it can hold up against the really good, uh, really strong kind of objections. Yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from there. And, you know, as someone who is a convert to the church, I, I became Catholic five years ago. I don't think I mentioned that to you. Um, you know, a lot of people who were who were and are in what was formerly my Protestant world um, thought that I had pretty trivial objections for be- or pretty trivial reasons for becoming Catholic because that's a lot of what they know. They engage with, and I don't want to point fingers here, but there are a lot of sort of ca- popular Catholic lay apologists that I think do good work, but they they reach sort of that first level of objection, the sort of fundamentalist, um, uh, almost almost sort of uh, untrue on its face claims about the Catholic Church, right? And it's very easy to counter those. Uh, it's a lot harder, I think, to counter the scholarly objections that do exist, right? They're not true. They're not real, but they do exist and they have to be seriously engaged with. So that's been a constant theme on this show as well that, you know, not, I mean, th- th- there are dumb, there are dumb Protestants, but there are also dumb Catholics, right? And not all Protestants are dumb, uh, far, far from it. Um, you know, I know many, many smart people who are Protestants and they have well thought out, well reasoned, re- you know, reasons for being Protestant. It doesn't mean they're right, but it means that those reasons have to be engaged with in a fair and reasonable way. Uh, so I, appreci- I appreciate your project here. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I love reading C.S. Lewis. I like listening to William Lane Craig, even though he is uh, a Christological heretic. Uh, I love, you know, like there are a lot of brilliant Protestant thinkers. And to to just wipe them away with like the most egregious kind of straw man caricature of the position, to think that, you know, to basically to hold up a position that only someone ignorant or malicious right. or idiotic could hold that, that doesn't do them justice and i think it's there's kind of an attack on the dignity of the human person when you treat other people's arguments like that i, I love the connection you made earlier to saint thomas aquinas because he he does this better than anybody right like you read thomas's objections and if that was all the summa you'd read you'd be like this is the most effective argument right against a christian yeah, exactly uh, <laughs> like if you just compiled those it's like wow uh, or even uh, to take maybe a, a more recent example, Dostoevsky uh, in Brothers Karamazov, the the section called the Grand Inquisitor is just Ivan. Uh, so it, very long story short, I'm reviewing the wrong book. I'm supposed to be talking about my book, but I'm following <laughs> Brothers K. But it's such a good book. Alyosha is the youngest brother and he's holy, but he's not like brilliant. And his older brother, Ivan, is like a brilliant atheist mm-hmm. and presents a really good argument against Christianity. And Alyosha is left flummoxed. Yeah. And I'm I was talking about this book yesterday because I think it does it really well, where it, it presents the atheist argument really effectively. And you see over the course of the book why he's wrong, but you don't get just some, you know, really pat kind of modern answer that you would expect if, if it was like God's not dead, Brothers Karamazov edition or something. You know what right, I mean? Like right. a lot of the modern stuff we have only takes the the most trivial kind of objections. And that, that's no way of preparing someone uh, to defend an actually controversial doctrine. Yeah. And there's something about that too. I think the human spirit wants a sort of witty reply, some sort of clever witticism that can just demolish the best of our opponent's objections. But that's not how reasoned discourse works in at least the vast majority of instances. I mean, it's true that 
I think we could probably find some of the best one-liners that we have from our favorite apologists, you know, insert name here. I mean, C.S. Lewis, for example, has some really good one-liners in Mere Christianity. But, but even so, I would say, I would contend that most of those one-liners handle sort of the first level of objection rather than the sort of uh, Yvonne Grand Inquisitor level of objection that we see in the Brothers K. Yeah, exactly. So to to really get those, uh, the moments of doubt that a person who might have even about their own religion or about their own, you know, within Christianity, that moment of like, wait, what if Catholicism is wrong or what if Orthodoxy is wrong? you got to have something for those. Um, in, I think it was in A Softer Garment, Monsignor Ronald Knox talks about this with the the five ways of Aquinas that he talks about at the the 2 a.m., like you wake up in the morning and you're having a crisis of faith moment and like which of these five ways gets you through the night. Mm. And for him, it was the argument from contingency yeah. that he could see like the logic of that so clearly that in the moments of panic and the moments of anxiety and doubt and all of that, that it was something he could really, it made sense to him and he could hold on to it. And he basically was encouraging his uh, his listeners who were college students to know what those arguments were for them, because if they just had the surface level or even just like a couple levels deep kind of understanding of their own faith, that's not going to be there for you when times get really tough or or when someone presents someone smarter than you presents a really good argument or whatever it is. Right. So I think it's important to kind of shore that up. Now, I can't claim that this book is going to be that for people. Sure. Right. But this book is at least trying to point in that direction or head in that direction a little bit uh, with one particular doctrine to say, what are the best arguments and how do we kind of grapple with them? Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I think it, I think it does that. And the only other thing I'll say on this point about engaging with the best arguments, you know, uh, someone who, who used to be an athlete or is an athlete might be able to resonate with this. Um, But you know, if you're a really good athlete, you'll probably want to get better. And if you're a really good athlete, professional baseball player, and you just always want to play a little league team, you're never going to get better at all, right? You're only going to get better by engaging with people who are, are, you know, playing the same game that you are at relatively the same skill level. And if we as Catholics are always trying to just counter or advance our faith over and against the sort of little league claims against our faith, we're not going to grow in our own faith because we're only going to get stuck in the rut answering those little tiny objections that are, uh, that are mostly ridiculous, right? Um, so, yeah. so I, I think that analogy works in my own thinking. I'm like, okay, how do we, how do we grow? How do we get better? We engage with harder questions. We engage with harder ideas. And yes, it might be difficult. And yes, you know, we might even have to confront our own doubt and pray through that. But if we are confident that we, as Catholics, are in a church that holds the truth of Jesus Christ, we have nothing to be afraid of. And we can't be afraid of our own doubt. I mean, to do that, I think, is really to to refuse, to, you know, we're like the, the crab that refuses to leave the shell because we're afraid of what we might find out there. Yeah, I think well said. My dad is a fanatical, so- was a fanatical soccer player back in the day. Oh, nice. And he, he once said that he'd rather lose 15 to nothing than win 15 to nothing. Yeah. And it's it's that same desire. Like the, I think truly great anybody wants, want to punch up. You don't want to punch down. Absolutely. Because you don't, you don't learn anything from that. It's, you know, you can go on a college campus and you can defend Christianity and get the same 20 objections. And feel really smart because right. after about a week, you're hearing nothing new. And yeah. the person who comes up with it is like, well, I'm spiritual and not religious. Like it's some yeah, brilliant right. <laughs> new insight they've had or like, oh, I actually question the church's teaching on sexual morality. And you're like, shocker. What a, wow. I mean, who would yeah. have guessed? So, yeah, you can you can punch down. And don't get me wrong. Like someone needs to be doing that kind of first level apologetics and all of that stuff. But someone also needs to be dealing with the the much harder 
right, much well, harder and, question. And even the people who are dealing with that first level, they need to be prepared to deal with the second, third, fourth, and fifth levels, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that's a really good way of approaching it. That we'll actually learn if we can get uh, like our own pride out of the way, because like the thing isn't like Catholicism is going to get disproven. What might get disproven are my arguments for Catholicism. Mm -hmm. What might get disproven are like all of the things that I, in my pride, think are good arguments. And so what's really on the line may not be the truth of Jesus's church. It may be my own pride, my own oh, ego. I, and, I, and so that's, yeah, yeah, I love that distinction that it's that the church is not going to be disproven, right? Or the existence of God is not going to be disproven. But what might get disproven is a your own ego. What also might get disproven is this particular argument that you are using. But what's that going to do? It's only going to make you realize one, that you should be more humble than you are. And two, that maybe that argument that you were using is not the best one. So let's go for another one. Yeah. I mean, uh, Aquinas seems to have a lot of skepticism of Anselm's kind of argument for God. Right. The, this kind of cosmological proof or the uh, ontological proof. Yeah. That's and, that's never been one for me that like, uh, you know, to use that 2 a.m. story from Monsignor, I've never woken up and been comforted by that one. I, I also have sort of trouble grasping that one. For, I'm, I'm more of an argument for motion guy. And the ontological one hasn't really worked for me. Yeah, you know, I got to say the most recent edition of Catholic Answers magazine has a pretty good defense of Anselm's argument. Okay. That is one of the better, simpler explanations of why it holds up. And I'm kind of in the place that uh, I think Bertrand Russell was originally of saying that it doesn't seem like there's an any clear argument against this, but something about it just feels a little fishy. Like yeah. the argument seems a little too... Uh, a little too neat, a little too pat. It's a little so, too easy, right? It's like, oh, that's yeah, it. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a, a small group of nerds are, I think, loving this portion of your podcast, and everybody else is like, "What are they talking about?" All right, we can so, we can go on then. Uh, let's <laughs> let's talk about your book, Pope Peter. You talked to me about sort of the method and engaging with the strongest arguments, but I don't think we've talked about the why yet. So why did you write Pope Peter? And I'd love it if you can weave in this story about the Zika virus that you tell in the beginning of the book. Yeah, so two reasons. Uh, one reason is uh, pre-Franciscan, meaning like uh, years and years ago, I'd been wanting to write a book on the papacy for the simple reason that if the papacy is true, everyone should be Catholic. And if the papacy isn't true, no one should be Catholic. Oh, it's so like, well said. It really yeah. is so simple that, you know, oftentimes when we're talking Catholic Protestant or even Catholic Orthodox apologetics, there's like 50 different topics you, you kind of flutter between and you don't get very deep on any of them and you don't get really a satisfying conclusion on any of them. And it can, you can easily get lost in the blur and lost in the weight of it and trying to research, you know, why do they say this on justification? What's the history of indulgencies? What's this about Mary? What's this about purgatory? And on and on and on and on and on down the list. That's really unsatisfying for most people because you aren't going to probably have the time and intellectual energy to figure out the right answer to all of those things. And I might just add, like, Christ doesn't tell us, sort out all this theology and then come follow me. Mm. Like, that's there's something radically unlike the biblical approach to following Christ or joining the church that we see in that approach. Yeah. Like, the person taking years and years and years to figure out if Catholicism is true uh, should be at least aware that something is weird in their approach to the church because we don't see that in Acts. We don't see that in the early church. Uh, instead, it's like, well, here's this one issue. If we can trust the papacy, if the Pope is infallible, that means he's also infallible when he gives us answers to these 49 other issues. Now we can look at one issue instead of 50. That's so much easier. And so as a person who loves easy things, I thought this would be a good book to write about. Uh, the second reason is that Pope Francis complicates this whole question, right? Like to put it mildly, um, the conversation about the papacy 
under JP2 or under Benedict XVI is a different conversation qualitatively, even among Catholics. Uh, you've got people who kind of switch sides in both directions yeah. in terms of how they talk about the Pope, what they say, uh, which things are we supposed to agree with the Pope on, which things are we free to disagree. All of those questions uh, take on a new tenor and urgency because Pope Francis has this tendency to th say things that are either A, ambiguous, or B, seemingly at least uh, in tension or in conflict with things that uh, his predecessors, sometimes all of his predecessors have said, where he'll say something that just sounds discordant with other popes um, and with prior clear magisterial teaching of the Catholic Church. That creates a sort of crisis of authority that you have to grapple with and, and take seriously. And uh, that, you know, there's that famous story about uh, how like crisis in Chinese has the character for opportunity, that there is an opportunity uh, in like peril and opportunity, I think are the two characters. Right. And that you can, you can really seize upon that and something good can come from that. Like when you have to figure out those questions, you actually come away with hopefully a clearer understanding in this case of the papacy. So the particular story of the Zika virus that you mentioned, uh, the coronavirus of 2016 was the Zika virus, right? Like everyone was very worried about this. It seemed like a new, deadly, dangerous disease. We didn't know how bad. One of the consequences was that it caused birth defects. And asked about it on a plane, Pope Francis seemed to say both uh, that contraception would be acceptable uh, because you could avoid having kids with birth defects, which is totally like unambiguously contrary to well, what every prior pope had said on the subject. And second, that this might be okay because the Ten Commandments conflicted, because the thou shalt not kill and the prohibition against adultery might be in some sort of tension. Uh, and this is a weird way of viewing the Ten Commandments, not least of all because they don't explicitly contradict, but also because in Veritatis Splendor, uh, St. John Paul II made it very clear they can never conflict. Like yeah, well, God's I just, law to, yeah, I don't yeah. understand. I mean, on the surface level, I don't understand how you can view that as a conflict between those in the first place at all even if these were not divine commandments. But in the second place, how can a divine commandment conflict? Because then God would be commanding us to obey a moral law that we couldn't possibly obey because we would be violating one or the other no matter what we did, right? Yeah, the medievals had a term for this, perplexus simpliciter. The idea that God could put you in a situation where every action uh, was sinful, uh, they just said this was a logical impossibility. This, by the way, actually is the best argument for the papacy, ironically. Because if the church isn't infallible, if the church can and even has erred, then we're forced to choose between schism and heresy, despite both of those avenues being prohibited to us. I mean, you, you see why I'm saying that? Like, yeah. Because to be a part of the church is to accept heresy, to reject the church is to accept schism. Christ has said you can't do either one. And so you're in this catch-22. Oh, that's so interesting. I've never thought about that before. Yeah, that's the perplexus simplicity. Like, that's the quippy you know, answer there obviously can go much deeper in ex sure. explaining like, why are, why are these things impossible? So logically you need something like infallibility to have unity in the truth. And uh, even a lot of Protestant scholars are realizing that they're choosing truth or unity over and against the other. Ben Witherington, the third is, is one I'd point out who, who really has grappled with this very openly and just said, yeah, as Protestants, we take uh, truth over unity. We think Catholics take unity over truth. And I think anyone reading that should pause and say, wait a second, Christ is so clear at the Last Supper that his followers are to remain united, and there are these constant like, admonitions to remain united in the truth. Like, Scripture doesn't present unity versus truth. 
it presents unity in the truth. Right. And the only way I can make sense of that is because they had a conception of infallibility, that the visible church would never be the opponent of truth. So that's a little bit of a sidebar that, you know, yeah. kind of laying down that idea. But this is also why this idea of perplexes simpliciter is also why uh, you can never say the Ten Commandments uh, contradict each other. Now, there's a whole lot more that goes into that. There was a, a movement called proportionalism in moral theology that JP2, I think, rightly condemns as basically saying that God's law is an ideal that no human can reach. And that therefore, we just kind of like, eh, everybody's going to sin. It's just a matter of sinning as, as little as you can. And that way is if not striving for perfection. I think ends up being really dangerous. And I think we see that very, it's very much in vogue right now. Um, and it's possible Pope Francis had something like that in mind. We don't really know. He doesn't explain how the fifth and sixth commandment could conflict. He doesn't uh, try to spell out this idea. Uh, and and thanks be to God, he hasn't tried to articulate this more because the idea is just kind of plainly incorrect. So all of that kind of crisis of authority is the other reason I decided to write the book. Like, how do we defend the papacy, the distinctive doctrine? when you've got a Pope who says things that are confusing or, or even seemingly wrong. And so um, to, to, to pull that thread just a little bit more, I mean, as you're going through this and researching this uh, in the Francis era, when Francis says things that are either uh, prima facie wrong or at least kind of befuddling, does it uh, or did it sort of cause you to question things a bit more and, and think, hey, you know, what do the Orthodox have going on over there? That looks a little bit more attractive because there isn't this distraction. Or was it, uh, was it you know, I need to really double down on this because I know there's an answer. I never doubted that. I just need to, um, to help sort of articulate this for others to understand. Yeah, I think much more the second one for a few reasons, right? Like even when the church was really uh, racked with this big question about divorce and remarriage with Amoris Laetitia and like the surrounding debates, the Orthodox are worse on that. Like they openly allow remarriage after divorce, yeah. even though it's so obviously contrary to what Christ has said. And they try to have these non-sacramental marriages. And there's a whole kind of weird history to that. That would be because originally the East didn't even allow marriage after the death of a spouse. So you have this overly rigorous position that wow. then swings to the opposite extreme. And, and it's in that debate with a whole lot of like imperial legislation about what civil law will permit because of the close relationship between the Byzantine Empire and the Byzantine Catholic Church or Byzantine Orthodox churches, you end up with this, what I think is, is a plainly incorrect view on marriage, on remarriage. So it's like as, as messed up as the Catholic situation seemed, the Orthodox and most Protestant churches were worse. So it was much more like, well, yeah, you could leave the frying pan, but it looks like a fire. Yeah. So <laughs> that I think that was probably one thing, honestly, that just made that less tempting or less attractive. The other is that there are so many good biblical proofs for the papacy. Um, and the third is just that the papacy has been through worse times. Like mm -hmm. as confusing as Pope Francis can be, um, as frustrating as he even can be, it's not a situation where you have three different people claiming to be Pope, like you had True. in the Middle Ages. Yeah, the dueling You don't papes, have yeah. like the Avignon papacy where the Pope refuses to come to Rome and you don't have these, you know, like Benedict the ninth or any of these people where they, they seem to have bought the papacy and like, you don't have that kind of stuff going on. Uh, and so in that sense, the authority crisis is, is comparatively less. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, but I'm also, you know, I am thinking about the, the, some of the things that you're saying about, you know, Pope Francis sort of sowing confusion and, 
Um, I, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit on some of the misconceptions that people might have about the papacy, because when Pope Francis says some of the more befuddling things that he tends to do from time to time, I'll frequently get tweets from family members or close friends who are Protestant and say like, whoa, did you see what Pope Francis said today? What do you think about this? And it's it's really hard for me to say like, guys, how do I explain that the, you know, like apart from just reiterating that um, the charism of infallibility does not extend to every tweet that, uh, you know, at Pontifex tweets or every offhand comment on an airplane that he makes to a journalist. I mean, beyond that, you know, how can I sort of explain that this doesn't really matter all that much? I mean, because to be frank, it's, it's a bad look, right? It's, it's hard for, it's hard for me to justify all those things. And so I don't, I don't think we need to justify everything the Pope says and does. Um, but it does get a little bit frustrating over time. So you know, on this issue of infallibility, for example, as perhaps one example, what are some um, some misconceptions that our Protestant brothers and sisters might have about the papacy and what the doctrine is and what the doctrine is not? Yeah, okay. I think that's a great place to go with it because I think that's exactly the situation every Catholic who has non-Catholic relatives has faced. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I think the easiest answer, if it's a Bible-believing Protestant, is just to look at St. Peter and say, hey, Imagine you're in the first century and imagine you believe in the infallibility of the first Peter and second Peter books, right? And then imagine in the first century that whatever the version of Twitter is, they're saying, oh, look at what he said here in Corinth. Look yeah. at like St. Paul just called him out. He subtweeted him in Galatians <laughs> 2. And it's like, yeah, Peter was definitely in the wrong there. Like, yeah, Peter uh, doesn't always say and do the right thing. And that doesn't even come close to touching upon the inspiration and infallibility of first Peter, second Peter, it doesn't come close to touching on uh, the inspiration and infallibility of his decisions in acts nine to go visit the house of Cornelius, his declaration of the inclusion of the Gentiles in acts nine, and 10, or sorry, 10 and 11, uh, his defense of that at acts 15, like on the particular issue at hand in Galatians two, which is, are the Gentiles co-equal heirs of the promise? Uh, through faith, you know, and, and not through circumcision and works of the Mosaic law. Peter has the right answer in Acts 10. It is divinely revealed to him in Acts 10. He explains it in Acts 11, even to the satisfaction of people in Jerusalem. He then goes back and explains it again in the midst of the Judaizer controversy, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. He is right when he's teaching in his authoritative position as a teacher of doctrine. But in his personal conduct, when it's these offhanded things like sitting down for dinner in Corinth and they've divided so the Jews are at one table so they won't be, uh, you know, uh, defiled by these Gentile Christians, he acts in, the, in a cowardly way. He acts in, in an incorrect way and, and St. Paul rightly calls him out. But it, those two things, like every Orthodox Christian, Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, like has already distinguished between this one area where God is protecting him and this other area where he's still prone to sin and make mistakes. Uh, and, and we see that all throughout. Like we are not, uh, we're not given any major papal promise without the provisio or caveat that that's going to be the case. So think back to Matthew 16, Jesus says, you are Peter and the name means rock. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. And then almost immediately after that says, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block. Uh, and so he is at once, you know, Petra, uh, I called him the stone, uh, Petros. But then he also calls him Scandalon, which is like the, the stone that you stumble over. And uh, then Father Joseph Ratzinger, long before he became Pope, says, yeah, that's true of every Pope. Like he's both 
the rock of faith, but also through his human weakness, is a stumbling block. Like every pope's sins and peccadilloes have gotten in the way of the promotion of the faith, partly for a simple reason. Uh, like if you take the idea of the body of Christ seriously, every good action you do help builds up the body of Christ, which means every time you fail to do that, or worse, every time you sin, you're actually harming the entire body of Christ. Now, that's not less true for the Pope. It's more true. So every Pope has hurt the body of Christ. Every Pope has gotten in the way, just as all of us have. Uh, and so in that sense, like, yes, the Pope is both the rock and the stumbling block. But then you see this other places too. Like I, I mentioned in the book, like my favorite place to talk about papal infallibility is Luke 22 at the Last Supper, when Jesus tells the disciples uh, that to lead is to serve and gives himself as a model. And he tells all 12 that they're to be servants and they're going to judge the, the tribes in heaven. Uh, but then he goes on and says to one of them, Simon Peter, that he is going to be a servant to the other 11. So he makes him servant of the servants of God. He says, you know, uh, when you have turned back, strengthen your brethren. So even there, even while he's like giving this like uh, servant leadership authority to Peter, this papal authority to Peter, he is couching it in the context of an allusion to the fact Peter is going to deny him three times which is worse than any plane interview Pope Francis has ever had. Like yeah. at no point in a plane interview has, has Francis denied Christ three times. So Peter has had the worst off the cuff response of any, you know, any popes on record. And the final one is John 21. Like Jesus has his threefold feed my sheep, which recalls the threefold denial Peter has. In other words, every time you see Jesus building up the papacy, he does it very explicitly connecting it uh, to the weakness of the Pope himself, very explicitly connecting it to Peter's own weakness and his sinfulness, so that we couldn't possibly come away with the view that we've somehow managed to come away with, which is that papal infallibility means the Pope is sinless, or papal infallibility means, you know, the Pope is always without error, or always without fault. Uh, you just, I think if you read the scriptural evidence, you see both a strong case for the papacy and an equally strong case for the the sinfulness of individual popes. Yeah, and your reference in those Bible passages was making me reflect on which of the disciples comes across as the most sort of sinful or perhaps we can just say stumble-prone. And I think it might be Peter. I mean, there's obviously Judas who betrays Jesus. So he he is just, I mean, he, he betrays Jesus and to the extent that we can tell, doesn't have any obvious repentance. Maybe there's repentance before he hangs himself in a tree, etc. But he goes and does that. So let's forget about him for now. But you know, we have James and John, right, sort of arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, who gets to sit on Jesus's right hand, etc. Uh, and so that doesn't reflect well on them. But then we have Peter, who like whips out the sword and cuts off the servant's ear, the high priest servant's ear in the garden. We have Peter, who, uh, you know, denies Jesus three times, perhaps most significantly. We have Peter, who Jesus calls a stumbling block and says, get behind me, Satan. So it seems like Peter while having this sort of position of what we can at least say is primacy among the disciples, at least first among equals, it seems like Peter is also the one who's most prone to make these mistakes. And that can't be, and that can't be something that's outside of God's sovereignty, right? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, part of it is that uh, it's only the shallowest of view that says the person in authority is the holiest person. Mm. I mean, go back to the Holy family, right? Like the head of the family is St. Joseph, who is the only sinner in the bunch. That's a good point. Uh, and then, the child, the infant is the holiest. Yeah. Like he is the one who is the holy God. So it totally inverts the hierarchy in terms of authority and holiness. The person who is objectively the most qualified to run the family is the baby, mm -hmm. as weird as that is to say. Yeah. And so 
it's easy to fall in the trap of saying uh, that rank carries with it sanctity. And I think a lot of times in like debates over women's ordination, the idea that like we don't allow women to be priests is taken to mean we don't allow women to be saints. And it's never said that way. Yeah. But that mistake of conflating rank and holiness uh, is a, a pretty grave error and one that I, I think a close reading of the Bible makes pretty clear isn't the case. That is often the lowly, like the women at the foot of the cross are much better than all of the apostles in terms of following Christ. None of them have rank. And so the people with like all of the 12 like are an embarrassment, with the exception maybe of John. John, sure. But Matthew yeah. says they all run away. It just seems like John runs away and then comes back. Yeah, he changes his mind, yeah. Yeah, that's the bar we're clearing is like they ran away, but one of them came back. Whereas like the Virgin Mary, is, it, she doesn't run away. Mm-hmm. She follows and she's at close. She's at the foot of the cross, even when the other ones are at a distance or in the case of 10 of the apostles, don't manage to show up to Good Friday. So... Yeah, I think the first thing we'd say is like God doesn't just like call the qualified. Like there's a, a notion that he qualifies the call, that he he makes them into saints, not just because they were so good. And there's a lot that can be said about his sovereignty and his predestination and like all of these ways that divine initiative uh, is key to understanding any of this stuff. But the second thing is it's worth mentioning one of the reasons we know so many of Peter's faults is because he's first, because he's a pope. And I can point to one really specific area here. In the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Jesus brings 11 of the apostles. The 12th one will come under uh, inauspicious circumstances after that. Uh, And he brings them all into the garden. Most of them he keeps out and leaves in the outer portion of the garden. He brings three of them, Peter, James, and John, in closer into the garden with him. And then he goes further on yet. All of them fall asleep. Jesus rebukes one of them, Peter. Now, that by itself should be enough to tell us something about Peter's primacy. Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much has been given, much will be expected. So the fact that Peter is being uh, held to task in a way the other ones aren't, in the same way that like, look, if if you came home and your house was destroyed, the kid that you like rebuked for this is probably the babysitter. Is probably sure, the oldest yeah. kid. It's probably the kid who's in charge. Yeah. Uh, they, like, they're the ones who should be doing better. Like, Jesus just doesn't hold the other ones to the same level that he holds Peter to. Because all of them betray Christ in one way or another mm-hmm. by running away, you know? And so, yeah, Peter has his faults. They're pretty egregious faults. And God can still use him. And that should give us a lot of comfort uh, with other popes we may struggle with, whether it's Pope Francis or future popes or whoever it may be, God can still use all of that for his good. So on the continuing theme of biblical support for this doctrine, if I can sort of strongman the Protestant position, I think it would say that, yes, we acknowledge that there is some sort of Petrin primacy, but that primacy is a first among equals. Clearly there is some sort of headship here. And I think this is more in line with the Orthodox position on this. Uh, I used to be an Anglican. I know that that many Anglicans at least think this way as well. And the position is, look, we acknowledge that he's a first among equals, but he never, in the biblical account, has been given this sort of infallible authority that the Catholic Church claims that the Pope, in fact, has. So how do you respond to that? Because a lot of these scriptural passages, to me, certainly are undeniable proof of at least a primacy among equals, but not necessarily of the charism of infallibility as the Catholic Church holds to be. Great. I think I'd go two ways with it. One of them is just to ask whether this is something about the model of the church that we're seeing. Meaning, 
you have kind of a, if you will, like a triangular shaped hierarchy in the church that if Peter is being given something over the others, in other words, in Luke 22, when he's told strengthen your brethren and he's made like a servant to the others as they are to the church, you have a pyramid. Like it's a pyramid of service, not just a pyramid of like power in like the Gentile warlord sense, but there still is a pyramid. And you have the same kind of pyramid in the family with parents over their kids. You have the same kind of pyramid with the patriarchs. You have the same kind of pyramid with the judges and with the kings. In other words, when you look at every institution that God creates, it has the same basic shape, the same basic structure of authority. It's never ruled by committee. It's never ruled by like co-equal heads. There's always some kind of headship and the buck stops somewhere. As C.S. Lewis actually makes maybe the best argument for this when he's arguing for male headship. And like his exact argument works equally well uh, in arguing for the papacy, that the buck needs to stop with somebody and you can't have like uh, everybody has an equal vote because what if you have a tie? And so all of those questions, right? That'd be the first thing I'd say. If this is something that God is actually establishing, if it isn't just like a historical accident that Peter is is made the head, then we should be part of the church Christ created. And how can we tell us the church Christ created? It has a single head in the Petrine uh, fashion or in, in this Petrine succession lineage, uh, because that looks like what Christ has done. And if it can credibly be traced back to Christ and Peter, uh, then that's probably the church he's telling us to be part of in John 17, 20 to 23, when he tells us to all be one, even as he and the Father are one. So he calls us to union with the church, and there are plenty of other New Testament passages about that. So if that's a hallmark, then we don't have to quibble about should the Pope have said this, should he have done that? Because just like, you know, if you're told to be part of your family, that doesn't mean everything your dad says is going to be like the right thing. That's not the question. Like, honor your father and mother doesn't have like an asterisk unless you really disagree with some of the decisions they make. So in other words, uh, the first question is just, okay, is this a church founded by Christ? And if it is, we should all be part of it. The second, I think on the biblical evidence, you really do see Peter being given infallibility. And here, Matthew 16 is a good place to look. Now, a lot of the debate happens over what do we mean by upon this rock of right, right. church? But let's leave that aside for a second. Because without a doubt, the next things out of Jesus' mouth, after saying the gates of hell won't prevail, or that I will give to you, in the singular, directed to Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be held bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be held loosed in heaven. And that right there, the binding and loosening being given to Peter, uh, is, by the words of Jesus, he's saying whatever you decide on earth is going to be ratified in heaven. That's infallibility. But more than that, we know it's infallibility from looking at the Jewish context. If you pull up the Jewish encyclopedia, it's available online, uh, look up the entry on binding and loosening, and you'll see that the Jews had the belief in the ancient world that certain decisions by the high priest or the Sanhedrin were infallible. And they were infallible because there needed to be some earthly authority to interpret what the law said in the particular context of the day. And it had to be a trustworthy interpretation because everyone was going to live their life according to it. So, you know, can we travel this far on the Sabbath? Can we eat this much when we're fasting? Those kinds of questions, uh, is this food kosher, is it not? If I'm a Jewish layman, I need to be able to trust that what the high priest is telling me is accurate, or what the Sanhedrin is telling me is accurate. And so God will divinely protect that. So if I'm listening to them and I'm obeying them, I'm okay. And the term for this was binding and loosening. They were binding or loosening certain things under the law. This is the language Jesus is drawing on in Matthew 16. He's using that kind of language. 
What's more, we know that this belief in this kind of at least limited Jewish infallibility uh, does exist. So Matthew 23, Jesus looks to the Pharisees and says to observe whatever they tell you, even though you shouldn't live like they live. And he says that you should do this because they sit on Moses' seat. So the Pharisees, despite being pretty rank sinners, are still given some sort of teaching infallibility of at least some kind on interpretive questions. Likewise, in John's gospel, um, when the high priest stands up and says it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed, John tells us that this is like he has this insight because the Holy Spirit was guiding him because he was high priest that year. So this notion that the Holy Spirit will protect the leader of the people uh, in something like infallibility is found within the Bible, is found within ancient Jewish teaching, and it's found in a pretty clear way through Matthew 16, whether you take that in the Jewish context or just read the words kind of on face. Taken together, all of that means like if the Holy Spirit is going to protect the high priest as corrupt as he was, he's surely going to protect the Pope from leading us all into heresy. Like Caiaphas doesn't lead the people into heresy. So the radical claim of orthodoxy and of Protestantism is that God doesn't protect the high priest of Christianity, or, you know, the visible head of Christianity in the way that he protected the visible head of Judaism. And that is actually a pretty remarkable uh, kind of belief about the church. So there's a few things there. One is really interesting to me, and that's that's this notion that you, you also talk about in your book, obviously, but this notion that the Jewish high priest and the Sanhedrin had some measure of infallibility. So this then becomes not a novel Christian invention, but a continuation. A, yeah, exactly. continuation. Um, yeah, so the so the church as the new Israel, the church's leaders have this protection of infallibility. Um, you know, limited, of course, it doesn't extend to, it's, it's not impeccability, it doesn't mean they don't sin, but it means that they have final say on interpretive questions. Um, the second is this binding and loosening. But to go back to my question about the first among equals, um, the binding and loosening, if I'm not mistaken, is also given to the other disciples in Matthew 18, right? And you said it was it's, singular to to Peter in Matthew 16, but there's also the line about the keys, right? And that's the difference? Or is that the difference? Both end. So in Matthew 18, the church collectively is given a binding and loosening authority. So the church in an ecumenical council can make authoritative uh, decisions. And we see this very clearly in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. You have the apostles and the presbyters who are together. And in verse 28, they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. They are speaking on behalf of God with divine weight to their words. Like they know the Holy Spirit is protecting what they're about to say. And what they're about to say is to, to create a certain set of like regulations to live by in that time and in that place. And it, this is a great example of, of kind of the example of what it looks like to bind and loosen. Because the question is, how should you live among Jews living in Jerusalem? Because later on, so the, in a very particular way, it's about like, what of the Levitical law should you continue to live by? And one of the things was that not to eat uh, food sacrificed to idols. Later on, in a different context, Paul will tell Gentile Christians in Corinth that they're free to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. So Paul doesn't take the Council of Jerusalem to be making some sort of statement of, of eternal or everlasting significance. Rather, he interprets them, as the Catholic Church has later interpreted uh, the Council of Jerusalem, to be making provisional claims about in this time, in this place, God wants you to observe these things and you can let the rest of the law go because it's no longer binding of itself. So you don't create unnecessary scandal, avoid food sacrifice to idols and, you know, those kinds of things. That's a good example of binding and loosening. That's the kind of thing that rabbis would have done 
before that. So that, that's the church collectively acting. That's not just Peter individually. That's the Acts 18 kind of infallibility that you get where it says the church can bind and loosen. Um, but then the Ma- fact that Matthew Peter... 18, in, right? Oh yeah, sorry, Matthew yeah. 18. I apologize. Matthew 16, uh, Peter individually gets what the church collectively has. Now, Vatican I is going to talk about this, that when the Pope acts infallibly, he's not just acting in the person of the church. He's also able to do it in his own capacity as the successor to Peter that there are these two sources of infallibility given by God. One is to the church council and one is to the Pope. And one of the reasons you need both of them is because it's through the Pope that we know which church councils are and aren't councils. Mm. Um, In the early church, there was what was called the robber council, second Ephesus, which proclaimed heretical doctrines. It was agreed to in the East. It was rejected by the Pope. And now both the East and the West agree it wasn't a real council. That's good. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and so uh, the only way you can account for it not being a council is the Pope rejected it. It had all of the external appearances of a council, and you can't just say, well, it wasn't a real council because it said something heretical, because that argument is circular, right? Like anyone who's on the losing end of a debate is going to say, well, the council was wrong in my case. Uh, so you've got to be able to say, what are the objective standards by which we can know if something is or isn't an ecumenical council? Because if you can't know that, then the infallibility of a council doesn't mean a whole lot if you can't know who who is and isn't a counselor, what is it or isn't a council. So you need both the papacy and councils as a way of determining uh, who is valid, basically. So you know which which things to follow. It's not, I mean, this may sound to those who aren't familiar with popes or councils like it's needlessly convoluted or complicated. I assure you that's my own explanation. The, the point of it is actually to make it simple that you don't want to have to figure out, well, did this have enough bishops? Did it have enough regional representation to really be a council? You can just say, okay, did the Pope accept this as an ecumenical council? Did he not? And that makes it so much easier that having to parse through all this history. The beautiful thing about the Catholic claim is that you don't have to be a historian and a theologian and 20 other things. You can just be an ordinary Christian saying, okay, did Christ give this authority to Peter? He did. Cool. I'm going to follow the successor of Peter. And then if I've got a question, I can say, hey, successor of Peter, what is the right answer on this this really confusing issue? And I can go with that. I don't have to be a theologian. I don't have to be a philosopher. I don't have to be a historian. I don't have to get into the nitty gritty of all these debates, which is is just an impossible standard for an ordinary Christian to be held to. Right. Yeah. Now, what about the keys to the kingdom that Peter's given in Matthew 16? What's the significance of those? Yeah, okay, great question. So the keys go back to Isaiah 22, uh, and they're a symbol of authority. So Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, uh, is given the keys of the house of David to show that he's being put into a really fascinating role. Actually, there's great scholarship on Eliakim's role, because in this passage, he's been given simultaneously high priestly authority and the authority of governance as second only to the king himself. He is the vicar of the king. He's what's called the palace administrator. So later on, uh, when they come out and demand to speak to the king, like a neighboring army does, Eliakim is the one who goes out and speaks on behalf of the king, or he doesn't speak, he he receives them on behalf of the king. Uh, So he's able to act as the vicar of the king. He's able to act as the high priest. He's able to act with this combination of like governance authority and priestly authority. That image of the keys is like, I mean, we, we have this sort of like receiving the key to the city as being kind of uh, honorary now, but historically it's like this notion of like a, a promise of authority. Yeah. So I, I almost Peter, think that our modern idea of like the key to the city kind of hurts this picture Yeah, <laughs> because to us it's like, oh wow, it's like an honorary award that means absolutely nothing. Right. But what you're saying right. is 
back then, the keys to the kingdom or keys to the city would have meant that that person could really act almost in persona of the ruler himself. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe the better example would be giving your kid keys to your car. Because like, yeah, you're saying, okay, I trust you. You're going to be in charge of like taking care of this. Yeah. And and there's a real sense of like, you don't own it, but you're going to get to drive it. Uh, that's kind of what his authority is in Israel. And that's kind of what Peter's authority is in the church, that he is not replacing Christ, but he's acting as a vicar of Christ. He's acting as a visible uh, person you can go to when these questions arise. Like when there's a question of what to do about the Gentiles, they can't go ask Jesus because he's ascended. And so they can and do ask Peter in Acts 11. Uh, so he's able to act in this kind of capacity. And, and that very much is this kind of authority of Eliakim. And what's remarkable is that even in Matthew 18, the entire church doesn't receive that authority. This only goes to Peter. This kind of authority is singularly given to Peter, which doesn't sound at all like first among equals. It isn't like the other 11 are given slightly less cool keys. The only two people you ever hear about having the keys in the New Testament are Jesus and Peter. Jesus in the book of Revelation, Peter in the Gospel of Matthew. Like, that's the comparison there. And there are plenty of other times where, like, only Jesus and Peter are described in certain ways. Only Jesus and Peter are described as both rock and scandal. Uh, only Jesus and Peter uh, have the miracle of the coin apply to them in, God, in the Gospel of Matthew with the temple tax. Like, the connection there is so close that Peter is is treated as something more than an apostle. And so you have this also throughout the Old Testament, the, excuse me, throughout the New Testament, where it's like in Acts 11, or I'm sorry, Acts 2, when it says Peter gets up with the 11 on Pentecost, he's being treated as something more than an apostle. It doesn't just say Peter gets up as one of the 12. And so you have, the, or, you know, at the resurrection, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Mm. Like all of these times where Peter is being treated as something more than just one among equals, uh, and even as a leader among equals. He's being treated as having some kind of authority that the others just don't possess. Joe, have you ever engaged with the question of why these things aren't more explicit in Scripture? Because I, I, I think that your exegesis here is helpful, and it does sound like, especially taking into account Matthew 16, there is a difference of kind and not just a difference of degree. But, you know, I've, I've also encountered Protestants who have told me, like, look, if I'm supposed to believe that, why isn't it more explicit in Scripture? And this answer might be too simple, but I sometimes wonder, maybe it's not more explicit because it was very explicit to the people who were living at the time, right? And maybe that answer is too simple, but I'm curious to know what you would say as well. I think partly it's uh, an assumption that doesn't hold a lot of weight for a Christian. Meaning this, like if you're a Christian who believes in the Trinity, you don't get to say, every important doctrine is spelled out super clearly in scripture sure, because yeah. the Trinity, although it's implicit, although you can make the case for it, I think successfully is not super clear in scripture. Yeah. And anyone who tells you it is, is just not taking the evidence seriously enough. Um, for that matter, go to acts eight, right? Uh, you've got the Ethiopian eunuch and he's sitting in the chariot reading Isaiah and Philip comes up to him and says, do you understand what, what you're reading? And he says, how can I, unless someone explains it to me. And so that I think is the answer. Scripture isn't meant to just be something you pick up in the privacy of your own home and read and draw your own conclusions, and they're going to be the same conclusions as everyone else. Luther's argument uh, in the Reformation was that Scripture was so clear that anyone could pick it up and understand what it meant. Calvin argued the same thing, and yet 
Luther and Calvin disagreed about what scripture actually meant on several important points. <laughs> or so, or uh, what books should belong in scripture. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, this is the craziest part, because both of them use this clarity of scripture argument to say we can know the canon, and yet neither of them agree on the canon with each other, with the early church, or even with the modern Protestant Bible. Right. So the idea that scripture is just all clear here is one of the most obviously patently false things, not just on the papacy, on so many important doctrines like which books belong in the Bible, on the three persons of the Trinity and their relationship, on whether Christ is equal to the Father in all regards, or if there's some sense in which he's subordinate, like all of these things, but the interaction of the humanity and divinity of Christ and his knowledge, we can go on and on and on and on down the list in just big issues, right? Like not like irrelevant stuff, but on big issues, so the idea in Protestantism that we should say, what does it say on the surface, is not the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament. It's not the way the early Christians read the New Testament. It's not the way any Christians before the Reformation said, yeah, this is the way we should interact with Scripture. The surface read is, in, in more cases than not, going to be misleading. Right? When Christ says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it, John is so clear that like a surface reading gets you the accusers of Christ. It doesn't get you the Christian reading. Right. Because the temple he speaks of is his body. Like His accusers are the ones who take him at face value and don't see the, the metaphor that he's employing. Right. And so that notion, like the underlying assumption that if the papacy is true, it's got to be explicit, is just demonstrably false. Like you just can't hold it as a Christian. But then the second thing is, and this is where I think it's uh, important, is in the Ethiopian eunuch's response, unless someone tells me, it's an invitation. The very complexity of scripture is an invitation to sit and listen to the church. And so in Revelation 1, one of the most confusing books of the Bible, right? Uh, we're told, blessed are those who hear it and blessed are those who read it. So the assumption of the book of Revelation is that it's being unpacked in the context of the church, not in the individual context. Likewise, Second Peter refers to Paul's writings as confusing, and there's a warning about trying to interpret Paul, right? Like, you are likely to misunderstand Paul mm -hmm. uh, because his writing's confusing right. and heretics have gotten him wrong. And so what do we see in the Reformation? There's like, no, 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 it's actually not confusing. It's really simple. Yeah, it's we like, got this. We got this. Yeah. It took us like, a while, no. but we got this. <laughs> Second Peter's right, you guys. You guys have no idea what you're doing. You yeah. have no idea what you're talking about. Scripture was never meant to be privately interpreted in that way. Like it just wasn't. It was it was always interpreted in the context of the community. And when questions of interpretation arose, they were brought before the community. The Council of Jerusalem, they're unpacking important unresolved questions about what happens with the Mosaic law that Christ doesn't really answer during his ministry. So as, as soon as like a few years after the ascension, they're saying, oh, actually, there's still a lot of stuff we don't know. There's still a lot of stuff we got to unpack. Like what happens now to the Mosaic law? Is it fulfilled? Is it abolished? Is it still in place? And then you, you have the kind of constant working out of those things in the life and ministry of the church. And it was never meant to happen in the life and ministry of the individual apart from the church. Uh, this is just partly the result of like modern individualists trying to understand Christianity that arose at a time when individualism was was not just frowned upon, but actually a joke. Like the Greek word for the person who stands apart from the community is idiot. Like idios is where we get idiot. Like it's like if you break away from the community and try to do your own thing, that's idiotic. Right, right. And so the Christian community worked the same way. There's no instances in scripture where the person who rejects the apostles is actually the one in the right, where the person who rejects the visible church is actually the one doing the right thing. That's a good point, like, yeah. 
it's just all over the place. Like we're given a church, like Christ builds a church. She doesn't leave us a book. That's the way you often hear it. And that's potentially misleading, right? But he gives us a book to be interpreted by the church. And, and, and he gives us, he church. also gives us a book through the church, right? Because it's exactly. for the, for the new Testament, especially, I mean, the, the old, the old um, Testament is, is created by Israel, which becomes the church, right? Then the church is the mm-hmm. new Israel. And it's the, uh, the apostles of the early church who give us the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. And so you you have this very clear sense in which, like, if you just say, what's the authorship of this book and who's it being written to? The answer is usually it was written by, like, a high-ranking member of the visible church right. to, you know, uh, another church right. or to another Christian in the church or something. So or to this guy, Theophilus, there's a couple of those. <laughs> yeah, fair point. So you have some that are maybe, like, question mark in terms of who or in the case of hebrews a question mark in terms of the from yeah but you know like the, the basic idea is like if you cut out the ecclesial dimension you're left with nothing like you're left with no new testament uh and and this is i just think it's a, a point that we we kind of miss like christ calls the 12 and if your understanding of christianity is primarily that it's a religion of the book mm-hmm. that doesn't make a lot of sense because at least six of them never seem to put pen to paper at least six of them never write anything but they do things like build up visible churches that continue to last. Like uh, St. Thomas, we don't have any of his writings, not in terms of authentic scripture, right? But we do have the churches in India right. that, that can trace their lineage back to him. And that's lasted for 2,000 years, right? So that like if Christ comes and he calls 12 to build the church. Uh, Ephesians 2.20, like the foundation of the apostles is what's being laid with Christ himself as the cornerstone. They're there to build the church. They're not there to like build the greatest book ever written. Uh, they do that, some of them, but that's not the the apostolic calling. So trying to understand the apostolic faith apart from understanding the role and ministry of the apostles, I think it just radically misunderstands. Like, I think there's, there's a sort of um, Pauline Christianity that's anti-apostolic that's certainly not all Protestants, right? But there are some Protestants who sort of treat the Gospels as kind of a prologue to where yeah. it gets really important, where you get the theology in Paul. And I think that radically misunderstands the ministry of the second person of the Holy Trinity. Like, he is not the John the Baptist to Paul. Yeah, Paul is unpacking some of the implications of what Christ comes to proclaim. And so I think we have to reorder uh, the way theology happens in a lot of modern theologians' kind of worldview, because they're, they're missing the Gospels. And they're they're treating the gospels as sort of irrelevant or unimportant, or and just sort of like the, the historical backstory to the theology that Paul's talking about. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. great. And and into right for all of the faults one can have with some of his stuff, he does a really good job of pointing this out. That yeah. like if you look to just a, a reformed creed, you don't need the gospels to get any of the points that they're trying to argue. You could cut the gospels out and not lose any of the story, and that should trouble us. Like that. Yeah. That should be alarming. Or you can cut out at least the middle of the gospel, say Matthew 3 to Matthew 27, like everything after the birth of Christ and before Good Friday. You can cut all that stuff out and seemingly not lose anything. Right. That should be alarming. That should yeah, be a it problem. it is alarming, right? man. Uh, and so I think that's part of the problem here. Like we just don't know how to read the Bible. And part of the issue there is because the Bible is given to us in the context of the church, that what Christ is doing in those middle books is building the kingdom. And the kingdom's not just someplace far off. It's not just someplace to get to after we die. The kingdom of God, very explicitly in Matthew 13, is already here on earth. And it includes both the saved and some number of the damned. In verses 47 to 50, it's a net that contains both good and bad fish. Let's tie this back into Peter. That net 
it ties in with this Petrine image that we see all over the place from Luke five to John 21, where Peter is called as the fisherman to drag the net in ashore. Uh, St. Augustine has a beautiful meditation on, on this, this last chapter of John, where he is explaining that this represents the church throughout history. Like this is the net being dragged by Peter towards Christ. Uh, and, and Peter was able to do it without tearing the net. That's the role of Peter. That's the role of the church. And if we lose that in how we understand the scriptures, then we're, we're kind of hopelessly adrift. And isn't the word there for tearing, isn't that the, the Greek word for schism? It is, schismo. Yeah, yeah exactly. Cool. So it's, uh, yeah, in Luke 5, he brings in the nets and they tear. And in, Luke, in John 21, he brings in the nets and they don't tear. And there's a, something has gone on in between those two points and that, that that's, he's been called in this special way. Uh, it is all, we see it all over the place. Right before that, like when they go out for that last miraculous catch of fish in John 21, there's this little detail that's easy to overlook, which is that Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other apostles say, we will go with you. That's cool. John is not including that as just like a minor detail. Right, right. right. Like, that's telling you about the role of the church and the relationship the other apostles have to Peter. Like, we will go with you. And likewise, in John, or sorry, in Luke 5, uh, when you have four different apostles there at the first miraculous catch of fish, Jesus calls one of them, Peter, and says, you will be a fisher of men. He doesn't call all four at that time. He doesn't say you'll all equally be fishers of men, one of you slightly more equal than the other. It's nothing like He just right, says right. to Peter, you're going to be the fisher of men. So this role of Peter as the fisherman, uh, we see that throughout. And the fact that that's then the image Jesus uses to describe the kingdom on earth tells us a lot about the church, tells us a lot about Peter's role in the church. I love that. I mean, I, I love your um, your kind of reflection or your thoughts on how we often don't know how to read the Bible, don't know how to understand the Bible. And I think if we had a better knowledge of of the Hebrews and how they understood the Sanhedrin and how they understood their uh, their scriptures, we would then maybe be able to have a better understanding for how we should understand our scriptures, uh, the Old and the New Testaments, and how our church authorities hold interpretive authority for us with respect to those things. Um, and I, I also like your point about how six of the disciples, as far as we know, didn't write anything. Uh, and so, yeah, if we're, you know, if, if this is really like an instruction manual from them for us, they didn't do a very good job because half of them just went off and didn't write anything for us, right? So Classic group project, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like everybody gets their name on it. Yeah, they're the slackers. Yeah, Thomas is a slacker, and yet, you know, he went all the way to India to spread the gospel, and there are still St. Thomas Catholics there in India who trace the lineage to St. Thomas. So, um, yeah, I think that's really good. My friend Casey Chalk, who's been on this podcast several times, we did a whole walkthrough of the TULIP acronym for Reformed Protestant Theology. Um, he talks about this a lot and talks about clarity of Scripture and um, perspicuity and how it begs the question, right? It begs the question that, one, it's all there for us to just uncover, and two, that, of course, you know, we can just uncover it ourselves without any aid of the church, that there's no sort of mediation of this uh, between between uh, us and God. Yeah, I would say this. Like, if you believe in the clarity of Scripture, you should have a few signposts to say, okay, if this is true, what can I expect? Yeah. The first thing I can expect is that all Christians of goodwill who've done the basic reading will agree on all points of theology. Because if that's true, like if it's as simple as just like two plus two is four, yeah. we're all going to agree. And that is, I and can so, fact check, I can fact check that, that right now for you. That is not true. That is not exactly. the case that everyone agrees. And like, maybe you could say, well, in the beginning they hadn't shaken off all of the Roman vestiges or whatever, Sure, but certainly 500 years on, there should be one Protestant denomination. Yeah. 
Yep. And you, the number of denominations should be shrinking every mm-hmm. year as like they get closer yeah, and closer converging to the right and not diverging. Yeah. Yeah. And yet every, every bit of evidence points away from it. Mm-hmm. The fact that Luther and Calvin disagree, the fact that number of Protestant denominations has grown every year, uh, at least in the last 200 years, probably since Protestantism existed, you get more and more and more groups of Protestantism. It, it shows that there is no unity. There is no drawing closer together in agreed orthodoxy. There's no union of heart and mind. And those are all the things we're called to in the New Testament. Some really basic benchmarks for what we should expect, we don't see. Which, you know, as close as you can come to, I mean, you're right that he begs the question and the very things it's trying to prove. But if it's true, we should be seeing A, B, C, D, and E. We see none of those things. So it... I think the, the onus is really on the person who wants to hold that to say, okay, what should we expect and why in the world don't we see it? Uh, and I, I think when you look at the scriptural passages used to try to prove persecuted scripture, like the clarity of scripture, it's like John 10, where Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice. Yeah, not helpful. And it has I mean, nothing to do with scripture. Like yeah. they're being taken so radically out of context yeah. that to believe this, you'd have to say, uh, scripture is so clear. And by the way, no one realized this is what he was trying to say <laughs> in scripture about scripture being clear right, for right. 1500 years. That's pretty weird. And then that's the last point I'd make is like, if scripture is so clear, then certainly the teaching about scripture being so clear in scripture should be so clear. And so someone before Luther should have been like, oh, by the way, this is so easy, it's so clear. (laughs) And yet even the people that Luther and Calvin try to point to for support in the early church very explicitly do not believe scripture is so clear in this way. Uh, Like when you read like St. Augustine, when he's talking about justification or when he's talking about predestination, he's like, I don't understand this part. Here's my best guess. He's not saying this is so clear. How can anyone be so dumb as to not get it? Like Calvin says, it's as easy as telling black and white apart. And Augustine says, I don't understand it. And then writes an entire book called Retractiones, where he just talks about the areas where he thinks he's been wrong in the past. Right, right. Like Amazing. there's a totally different approach towards the truth and towards the scripture. One of humility and one of just like a what's frankly a brash arrogance yeah. that has not stood the test of time well. Yeah, I like that. Well, we're almost out of time, Joe. I've got so many more things to ask you, but maybe one more thing to close on. There are a lot of uh, popular commentators in Catholic circles. I'm going to leave leave um, leave names out of this just in the interest of charity. But I see a lot of my Catholic friends who are serious about the faith, who are serious about um, orthodoxy and orthopraxis, you know, believing the right things and doing the right things, um, being a sort of enchanted by uh, folks who while maybe not explicitly seed of Acantist are perhaps like crypto seeds or maybe start, they start to seem like they're leading that way because they can't, you know, they, I think they sort of end up trying to justify everything Francis says and end up not being able to do it. Or they say that basically, you know, John Paul II was the beginning of like a major downturn and the devil's work, you know, the, the smoke of Satan in the church, et cetera. And there's something really pernicious about that, not just because it undermines the ministry of uh, the Holy Father and the good work that he that he does. I mean, uh, Pope Francis does some good things. He preaches good homilies, for example, in many instances. He makes some problematic comments uh, at times and uh, and all of that. But it undermines his work now. But I think it also. I don't think I know it also undermines the unity of the church in that way. So, you know, n- not asking you for an extended discourse here. I know you have to go, but just briefly, what would you say in response to people who are sort of uh, thinking more about these ideas and, and finding them attractive. Uh, you know, how do we sort of stiff arm this seat of a Kansas, this claim that the seat is empty, that there is no real Pope right now, that we're waiting for the return of, of a righteous Pope? Yeah, that's a great question. I would go with, uh, first Timothy three, 
Uh, when St. Paul says to Timothy, if I'm delayed, you'll know how to act uh, by the church, the pillar and foundation of truth, which is the household of the living God. Uh, this idea that the church is a household. And it's a household with a father and mother. Now, the father is like St. Joseph, where he's not the true father in a certain sense. Like the true father is God. The true bridegroom is Christ, right? But, but there's still this sense in which the Pope is in this kind of like St. Joseph role, in this fatherly role over the church. And all of the apostles and all spiritual authority is like this. You know, Romans 4 talks about how Abraham had this kind of paternity mm-hmm. over Israel. Uh, St. Paul says you've got a thousand uh, teachers, but only one father, meaning himself. And so there's clearly a, a spiritual fatherhood. That's a good model to use when we're talking about the papacy. It comes from Papa, right? Like, and so think about a family. In a family, there are going to be problems. And when you're young, your parents might have seemed like they were totally without error. And then you hit your teenage year and suddenly it's like, ah, oh, I do everything wrong. And I think a healthy, mature approach is to avoid rationalizing and defending everything your parents have done, even the things that were wrong, because that ends up making you an apologist for the the indefensible. On the other hand, you don't want to have an unhealthy fix, like fixation and fascination with all the ways they've screwed up and, and erred, and you don't want to be uncharitable about it, because that's a totally unhealthy approach, and that will totally prevent you from living healthily in a family, or for family unity, or for your own mental well-being and everything else. So rather, there's a, a third approach, which is to say, yeah, they're going to screw up. They're going to make mistakes, just like I would if I were in their position. And maybe we'd make different mistakes. Maybe we'd make a different number of mistakes. But yeah, like I can acknowledge the mistakes. I don't have to fixate on them. I can still respect their authority. I can still honor them. And that's okay. Like, And you could pray again, for your parents, ten- which is another thing. Exactly. To do. <laughs> pray for them. And then like you, you, if someone in the family is struggling because of something they said or did, then, you know, be supportive, but don't say, oh yeah, let's rebel against our parents yeah. or something like that. Like there's a way of empathizing that doesn't fall into a knee-jerk defense of everything mom and dad say is right, but neither does it say mom and dad are the worst. We need to rebel. Like the mature approach is to do neither of those things and say, yeah, they make mistakes. They're human. Yeah. Just like my boss at work, just like the president, just like yeah, me, just like the Pope. <laughs> yeah. Just like me. Exactly. Like I think, uh, I think being a parent, being in a position of authority is a great way of learning mm-hmm. how, uh, how bad it is to be a parent in some way. Like you're going to make a lot of mistakes a lot, yeah. and you're going to feel like you're screwing up and like you do everything wrong and you do your best. Even when you're like not being selfish, you're still going to make mistakes. And then your human sinfulness comes in your short temper, your selfishness, your, all of those ways you put yourself before others not just you, I mean me too, Uh, (laughs) like all of those things. So yeah, the Pope is going to have all that. He is both a stumbling block because of his humanity and the rock because of Christ's designation. And, and that's okay. And we should expect all of that because it's what we were told from the very beginning. Like Judeo-Christianity is so unique from everything else because it doesn't whitewash its heroes. Like when you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, the kings don't look very good. The apostles don't look very good. And if you read church history, the popes don't look very good. And that's okay because like true saints generally don't look very good. Like real saints often, like read the church fathers and see how many times like Jerome tears Augustine apart for basically no reason. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, Augustine He's a pretty pugilistic guy. Yeah. And so you gotta, you're going to have those kind of things where like there were holy people who fought like cats and dogs with each other. 
and there were saints on both sides of the fight, right? Mm -hmm. Like those kind of like, once you grapple with the nitty gritty of church history and really get into the, the depths of it, rather than having kind of a whitewashed version of it, then you're like, okay, cool. If that person for all of their faults can make it to heaven, there may be hope for me. Yeah. That, and I think it's a better approach. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's something beautiful to me. There's something comforting about our, our, uh, our belief in the Pope's infallibility, our belief, our beliefs in the Petron primacy, as you call it in the subtitle of your book, the church's most distinctive doctrine, because to believe that even the most flawed of popes is still the Pope is still the vicar of Christ is to say that, yes, God can work with this absolute mess of a situation with this absolute mess of a person. I'm not saying that's Francis right now, but I'm just saying the belief that God can work it's through me right now, right? <laughs> right like, yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's me right now for sure. Uh, but the belief that God can take any single person and still achieve his purposes through that person, regardless of how messed up and sinful they are, that is what we're talking about. Um, and so I think that's a really valuable thing to understand. I mean, you mentioned, I think it's John 20, right? The, when the high priest says it's better that one man should die. Is that John 20? Uh, I think it's John 12. John 12. Okay. It's uh, right after the raising of Lazarus. Yeah. And so he says that and like, he's meaning it one way, right? But he's actually speaking prophetically in the other way, in the true way about how Jesus will die for many, right? And so that's an example, I think, of, you know, even even he, uh, a bad person who is not well-intentioned, speaking something, and God is working through him to achieve his purposes. Exactly. Well, Joe, we are out of time. Thank you so much for your time today. So I mentioned Shameless Popery. Uh, I'm going to link to your book in the show notes. I highly encourage all my listeners to read that. But what else have you written? Uh, where else can my listeners go to find out more about your work and learn more from you? Sure. Uh, so I have another book out through OSV called Who Am I, Lord? Finding Your Identity in Christ. Totally different. Uh, I had just finished writing two chapters for an anthology that Trent Horn is doing on kind of the nearest alternatives to Catholicism. I think it'll come out this year, maybe next year, uh, on uh, basically why not Orthodoxy, why not Anglicanism, why not Savicantism. So that book, uh, I think, will be really good kind of in spite of my two chapters. So <laughs> I'd recommend that. And then uh, also I have a podcast, the Catholic Podcast. You can get it at cathpod.com or you can kind of look it up wherever. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's actually easier to look up Heschmeyer than it is because there's so many things with Catholic and podcast in it. So if you type in Heschmeyer, you'll find it. So. Perfect. And that's H-E-S-C-H-M-E-Y-E-R. Well, Joe, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for your work to build up the church. Thanks for your work in catechesis as well. And thanks for joining the podcast to talk all about the papacy. Again, check out Joe's book, Pope Peter, uh, Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine in a Time of Crisis. I think I got the subtitle right. We're pretty, pretty close. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Joe. Uh, have a great one. To my listeners, if you want to reach out to Joe, you can reach out to me and uh, I'll get back to you. You can also just head to his blog and, and comment there, and I'm sure he'd be happy to engage with you there. So thanks so much for listening to another episode. Until next time, God bless you. Mm -hmm.